All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, NewZest delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi-nutrients. It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code Wikipedia over at their website. And we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now back to the show. Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I talk to Guillaume Millet, an athlete himself all about the endurance athlete and fatigue. We discuss factors which determine success, how important VO2 max is for someone going long, Guillaume's flush model of fatigue, what creates fatigue, how we might train to be a better athlete and build resilience against fatigue. And at the time of the recording, we had just had the UTMB in Chamonix and Courtney DeWalter just sort of collected her triple crown. So we begin our discussion by having a bit of chat about that, which was super fun. So for those of you who are interested in endurance sport and building resiliency, this is an awesome conversation. And I'm, I'm delighted to say that Guillaume's going to come back on the show just after the new year. And we're going to talk six differences in endurance athletes. But for now, we focus particularly on uh, fatigue and building resiliency. So Dr. Guillaume Millet is a professor at Jean Monnet University in Saint-Étienne. From 1998 to 2013, he held various academic positions in France, including a four-year full-time research contract at the French National Institute for Medical Research. And in 2013, he moved to the University of Calgary, where he directed a research team in the Neuromuscular Fatigue Lab. And he was also the vice chair research for the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology from 2014 to 2016. 
He subsequently went back to France and received a very competitive fellowship that attracts outstanding scientists with a strong international track record. And he now leads the ACTA-FS, Physical Activity, Fatigue and Health Academic Chair. So his general research area investigates the physiological, neurophysiological and biomechanical factors associated with fatigue, both in extreme exercise and in patients with neuromuscular diseases, cancer and uh, patients in intensive care. His research is focusing on understanding fatigue in order to create tailored rehabilitation programs for clinical populations in order to enhance patients' quality of life. And we do discuss a little bit about how everyone is just on a spectrum, and so most of the same principles really apply. Guillaume has published many books, journal articles, and has supervised many postdoctoral fellows and PhD students from 13 different countries. And uh, I have a link to Guillaume's profile and his ResearchGate page in the show notes for you to have a closer look at his research that we discuss today. Just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on this show, including Guillaume Millet. Guillaume, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. Um, it's great to chat to someone who is both in the research with running, and I know it's not just running you do, you have a health focus as well, uh, uh, but you're also in with athletes too, and some of the like creme de la creme of, of the athletes in the ultra um, space. Are you a runner as well? I used to be. Do you do you still run like for I, yeah I run for yeah for my pleasure uh but I'm not competing anymore I did a, well I did a competition last year I may do one this year again or two but uh yeah just for fun uh but I used to uh, to be a heavy uh, ultra endurance runner myself uh, yes, yes. And it's funny, the way you describe how you run now is pretty much everyone, every middle-aged, I'm middle-aged, every middle-aged runner would probably probably say this, the same thing. Um, people are still competing uh, pretty hard at, uh, well, I'm 54, and some people are still doing, uh, like, uh, take uh, Ludo, Ludovic Pomeray. Uh, he's, yes. not, he's not 54, he's 48, so he's, uh, <laughs> but he still placed uh, fifth at the UTMB this year. It is crazy, isn't it? And do you are you familiar with um, Mike Wardian, um, that, no. the American runner? He's he's not. Um, I think he might be just on fifty, and he is in amazing shape for for his age. And I shouldn't really say that, but it is it it sort of is you know for for how old he is, but also the type of runner he is as well, um, Guillaume, because he is he's very he seems very resilient with a high training load, and I don't know that very many people are actually. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Some people are uh, incredibly strong and. Uh... Uh, never injured and some people are always injured and it's uh, part of the mystery i guess of training yeah. this is uh yeah of course if you if you want to be good the first thing is to keep training so being resilient to uh, to injuries is is, uh, is fundamental of course 
Yeah, completely. And I definitely want to delve into some of the factors which um, help make us resilient as ultra runners. First, of course, because we are on elite runners, resiliency and um, huge workloads, Courtney DeWater. And in her most recent Triple Crown, I'm super keen to get your thoughts on that, given, of course, your close relationship with Sullivan in their um, Zone High program that you're now running. Yes, um, well, I'm, I can't, I can't tell I'm very close to Courtney. Uh, I've been uh, meeting her a couple of times during the, during the year and during training camps, etc. Uh, super nice person. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, but, uh, her training is, uh, like she, she's her own coach. Uh, she doesn't have a coach and, uh, she, she's not really interested in scientific support. And, you know, she's, uh, she loves to run, uh, like like she she feels she must run and uh, doesn't have much uh, of a plan as she uh, keeps saying but i think this is the the truth um that being said i'm i'm as everyone i guess super impressed by the, by what she has done uh, of course as a in charge of the scientific support of the of the team i was uh, super anxious about uh, her being injured after doing such a heavy uh, year uh, it didn't happen. I know that she is now taking some very uh, good rest. Uh, so hopefully she will let her body recover after this uh, crazy year. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, the, I, it was obvious from the, the UTMB that that was a tough one. I mean, uh, what she has done, uh, the Western States and Hard Rock uh, was uh, probably the most difficult part, well, on paper at least, because uh, she had only three weeks of recovery. Uh, but uh, yeah. And, but uh, it was, I was able to tell, um, I mean, not that I was not the only one, but uh, uh, seeing her running and struggling at UTMB uh, sh really shows how hard it was. Um, I mean, it was obvious that she didn't recover. She was not at UTMB at her normal level. Uh, and of course, I, I guess we can understand uh, based on everything she has done this year. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, UTMB, I think, uh, has been very tough for her. Um, but uh, yeah, this is this is just very impressive, and I'm I'm glad she succeeded. But uh, I hope she won't do that every year because uh, <laughs> I mean, she's she's still a human, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. Time, I mean, she's so so good. It would be too bad that she she gets injured. So, but she yeah. did she did it, and that's the main thing. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's that, you know, I um, have seen, and as I understand with sort of training, it's, you know, the training is one part of it, but the allowing the body to recover, to absorb the training, to then be able to train harder and be resilient to that is, is super important. And I suppose we've all got our own sort of levels of how much recovery we need in order to um, become fitter as opposed to continue to stress the body and then lead to injury, I suppose. Yeah, I think the body can do uh, a lot uh, provided you let him uh, recover and uh Recover is not uh, one week of recovery every uh, every year. It's uh, it's several weeks, or if not several months, and at least several months uh, out of running. And uh, the best ultra endurance athletes, uh, in particular Kilian and uh, François Den, they are both uh, heavy uh, skiers in winter. And I think it makes a difference. Like if you if you are off running for many months, 
uh, every year. I think this is the key to to last uh, many years, and this is what what they do. And I think it's a it's a good example. And Courtney uh, is also a skier, so uh, she, I think she also um, I'm not hundred uh, percent sure about exactly how many weeks of skiing she does, etc. But uh, uh, she's also a skier, and lots of uh, uh, ultra endurance runners are actually skiers, either uh, skimo or cross country skiing. And uh, if you are not living in a mountain region, then you can uh, mountain bike or do uh, cycling, etc. But this is this is very very important to be off running for many months, in my opinion, if you want to last several years, if you want to have yeah. a, a long career. Because we've seen, particularly in women, for some reason, uh, like uh, super good athletes uh, doing a couple of seasons, and then we don't see them again. Yeah, that's a real shame. And it's, um, um, I was actually thinking about, there was a movie, it was, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years, maybe five or seven years ago, and it was The Unbreakables. And it, I think Killian might have been in it. And there were like maybe three other runners, and they appeared to have the seasons of their career. Like they were just super fit, they were running all of the time. And as a, um, as a, I'm not going to say recreational runner because I do not like that term because I think we all take our running as seriously as you know as we do. Um, but as a, I, I, as a non-elite runner, there you go. Um, I was watching it and I part of me felt really envious that I didn't have the ability to continue to push the way that I saw the runners push in that movie. Subsequently, when I went and Googled them afterwards, I saw that three out of the four um, experienced what they called burnout and um, then had either several seasons off to sort of regroup or even just sort of leave the sport altogether, which is a real shame, actually. Yeah. No, that's true. So that's why yeah, you need to truly recover uh, again many, many weeks or even months, um, at least off running. Uh, but I, I believe it should be off training at all for several weeks, like for more for the mental aspects. And of course, it, you cannot there is also a compromise to find because if you are uh, recovering or stopping training for too many for uh, too long time, then yeah, you of course your level of fitness uh, decreases uh, immediately. I mean, from the first day, of course, uh, and so it's sometimes difficult to to regain this fitness level, and uh, especially if you gain weight, etc. Uh, but um, yeah, on the long term, I think it's still it's still very uh, useful and actually mandatory compulsory yeah Guillaume is there some sort of formula with which um for every kilometer or mile that you race that you should have x number of days off like do you buy into that kind of formula or is that just something I've read in runner's world which doesn't really hold true no, I don't think there is any uh, scientific basis for that. Okay. Uh, but some yeah. some people are saying, yeah, if you run an ultra uh, for every ten k, you should have one day of rest. Um, it, it seems a reasonable approach. Um, yeah. And again, you must differentiate the total rest and rest uh, without uh, running, uh, because if you do a like a one hour or two hours uh, easy uh, cycling run. Uh, Right, I think that's that's okay. Um, if you just want to be in the nature and enjoy, have fun, it's probably okay as long as you really don't push and uh, you're not you don't you don't run. 
Guillaume, can we just have a little bit of your sort of background? Like, was your interest in fatigue and endurance performance based on your own um, sort of background with running, or or how did it come about for you? Uh, I would say both. Uh, I think it was the uh, a bit of uh, an opportunity to do a PhD on this topic, and of course, my my interest uh, in endurance sports uh, since I'm uh, very little, <laughs> very young, uh, because I've been a cross country skier and then uh, endurance adventure race uh, athletes and then uh, trail and ultra trail runner. Uh, so there was an opportunity to work. I did my PhD on a. It was not fatigue actually during my PhD. It was more energy cost of uh, running and cross country skiing but i had the chance to find a supervisor uh, or two supervisors who were interested in the sport and let me uh, by then i was uh, it's not like that anymore in my lab but uh, they were i was able basically to choose on which topic i wanted to work so i had this i was very lucky uh, and then when i got my first position uh, it was a lab uh, with uh, there, there was a huge expertise in neuromuscular function and then i decided to specialize in uh, neuromuscular fatigue and uh, and then apply that to uh, first uh, like classic uh, sports and then ultra and then it was uh, there was not much by then uh, so i decided to 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 dig further in this uh, in this topic um, and then so yeah, i did that for the first probably 10 years of my career was mainly on athletes and neutral endurance athletes and uh, people going at altitude etc like extreme exercise and then I started to work on patients and as you said at the very beginning I'm more and more working on fatigue in patients so yeah my career has been almost entirely dedicated to fatigue uh, initially mainly athletes and now both mainly patients even though I try to 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 still uh, work on, on running and, and uh, extreme fatigue and I think the two aspects of fatigue can uh, can almost um, help each other in the sense that yeah. uh, what we do with athletes can help patients and uh, vice versa sometimes. Yeah, I imagine a lot of the same concepts or things that you're looking at or measuring would transfer over, um, but just on a different level or in, in a different um, context. Am I Would I be right about that? Yes, and uh, for instance, there are some training techniques or methods that we use with uh, athletes that we, there is no reason that we don't use that with patients. Of course, we just need to adapt the, the workload and the type of uh, workouts. But um, there are, again, if it's efficient for athletes, there is no reason that it doesn't work with patients. And this is what we try to do uh, using some techniques like interval training or electrostimulation, etc. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's still important to 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 work on athletes. At least it's not. I mean, it's not mandatory. You can of course focus only on clinical work, but I don't think it's a it's a, it's an issue. I think it's an asset actually. Yeah, no, that, I, I agree. Um, if you don't mind, can we spend some time talking about neuromuscular fatigue, your flush model, which I believe you published in maybe 2011. So it was, that's like 12 years ago now. Um, can we talk through some of the major concepts around that and how that sort of applies to performance and fatigue for the, in the ultra runner? 
Sure. Uh, so neuromuscular fatigue and the flush model are, are not the same thing. Um, so no. I, I actually uh, decided to publish this flush model uh, because I, I was convinced that uh, neuromuscular fatigue is uh, important, but uh, of course cannot uh, explain everything. So yeah, it's, it's important to understand neuromuscular fatigue. So maybe we can we can work uh, we can uh, talk about that first, and then yeah. I will explain the the limitation of this uh, of this type of work. So, yeah, when when you so neuromuscular fatigue can be defined as a decrease of uh, functional capacities of an athlete, well, actually of a, a person, not only an athlete. So either you run a marathon, an ultra marathon, or some for some people you just walk uh, to the grocery store, then you may get some uh, experience of. Uh, functional state decline. Anyway, so in athletes, uh, we usually measure the maximal force or maximal power uh, before and after a race, for instance, and uh, then you can tell, yeah, on the quadriceps, there is a X percent decline in maximal force. And this is a, a good definition of neuromuscular fatigue that actually more and more people call that uh, fatigability or performance fatigability or that neuromuscular fatigue. It's a, it's a synonyms, if you wish. Uh, anyway, and then, uh, yeah, so you have this uh, X percent decrease, uh, let's say, for instance, after a race like a UTMB, uh, you have a 40 percent, in average, 40 percent decline uh, of the maximal strength of your quadriceps. And then we try to explain using different techniques, um, in particular, electrostimulation or even uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation when we apply the magnetic field to the motor cortex. We try to understand whether the fatigue uh, comes from the muscles or from the neural system or the it's not only the brain it's the nervous system and um yeah so for instance uh, we have been uh, consistently showing that uh, the for ultra uh, endurance events uh, in particular in running uh, there is a huge uh, central component so the central component is the component uh, located at the neural system uh, level and uh, there is still some muscle fatigue or peripheral fatigue but uh, much lower and if you do more intense shorter exercise this is the other around you have more peripheral fatigue and less central fatigue and there is uh, we've published a paper recently showing that if you do the exact same exercise in running and cycling then the part of the central versus peripheral fatigue also uh, changes. Uh, you have in running, you have more central fatigue, and in cycling, you have more uh, peripheral fatigue, muscle fatigue, showing that it's not uh, it's not the, the central fatigue component is is not uh, totally in the brain. It's actually uh, coming from what is happening on the periphery. So this is why it's so complex because it's uh, the central fatigue is the inability of the the brain, the neural system to to drive to contract the muscles. Uh, but part of the this decline, so this inability to contract the muscle, can come from the muscles themselves. So it's not uh, it's not all in the brain. And uh, by comparing cycling and running, I think it was a good evidence uh, of that because, of course, and everything in terms of uh, neurotransmitter, etc., because it was the same duration and the same intensity. There is no reason that it's uh, 
very different between the two sports. Uh, but what, what is happening at the periphery because of the contraction mode, concentric in cycling and the plyometric in running, uh, probably the effects on the on the muscle and the, the sensors in the muscle is is very different. Anyway, so this is the neuromuscular uh, fatigue. So the 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 importance of the central component versus peripheral common component depend on many aspects actually so i cited the duration and intensity the the sports or the type of contraction but there are other other factors for instance if you're in the heat or at altitude the central component can be also uh, increased etc so there are many factors that uh, impact uh, both the amplitude of neuromuscular fatigue so how much decline you experience in terms of maximal strength but also what we call the etiology of uh, neuromuscular fatigue so particularly whether this is more central versus peripheral okay um, and yeah so once you have shown uh, that uh, yeah for instance after utmb you have a 40 percent decline of your maximal strength um yeah then you can you're happy you're <laughs> you you've uh it, it was it was interesting but then i was like yeah but that cannot explain performance i mean if, even if you de if you decrease uh your maximal strength by 40 percent you still have 60 percent and 60 percent of your maximal strength this is uh this is still a lot and uh, you can run at a very decent speed with only 60 percent so it's obvious that the limitation and of course i was not the the, the first one to talk about that i'm 100 sure you've heard about uh, uh team noakes and the, the yeah. central model so um it's it was obvious that yeah with 60 percent you can we can run much faster than what most people do uh including the best uh, transurance athletes uh run at the end of an ultra so there must be something else and this is why i decided to work on this uh, more integrative uh, model the flush model that you were uh, talking about to try to explain performance and limitation during an uh, endurance and ultra endurance event so the flush model <laughs> sorry i'm a bit long <laughs> no 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 i like it it's good you're explaining it really well thank you so the flush model um well as the the name can tell is uh of course based on the flush toilet uh, so basically, uh, so the, I think most people agree now that's the, the, the real determinant of performance during and during, uh, endurance, uh, uh event or transurance event, even more new transurance event is, uh, the perceived exertion, the perceived effort. So you really need to do everything you, you can to minimize that. And I was yeah. like, okay, so let's try to represent that in a plain way, in a simple way. And I thought that the flush the flush toilet was was a very good uh, model so in in the in the in the model the the perceived effort is the level of water in the tank okay yeah. uh, mm -hmm. and so so this is uh, so the tank and then you have of course you can fill uh, this tank uh, with water and this is what is happening when you start running so okay. uh, you are not necessarily starting with a empty tank and this is part yeah. of the, the model because uh, of course if you start with an empty tank this is better it means that you perceive the fort is is very low at the beginning and this is you need to do everything you you can to 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 reach that before the race and then when you start 
start running, of course, the level of uh, water starts to increase. Your rating of perceived exertion starts to increase, uh, even if you run at the same speed. Uh, of course, if you increase the, the speed, it changes. But if, if you run the same so for a, a given speed, uh, with time, you have a slight increase in this uh, level of water. And uh, of course, you can flush the toilet when you rest uh, or you sleep. But uh, so this is another component of the model. And uh, the fourth component that is very important is that you usually stop exercise uh, before you die. I guess you will agree with that. Uh, yes. <laughs> so there is what I call the security reserve. And this, the size of this, so, and this is also why a flush toilet was a good model because you have this sensor to that. Uh, uh, stops the water coming. Stops, stops, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so there is this uh, sensor, uh, this ball, um, to, to stop the water coming. And uh, we have the same thing in our brain. I mean, when we feel like it's we are, it's going to be uh, too much, we are overfill, we, we either decline the speed or we, we stop, uh, stop running. So that we are not uh, going too far. Uh, and the size of this security reserve can be uh, changed by mainly by motivation, uh, probably also by some mental training. So the yeah, so the, this uh, flush model I think is a is a very good combo of uh, everything that can happen during during a race. Uh, the the role that uh, mental training can have, the nutrition can have, uh, the sleep uh, before the race, for instance, or during the race can can have as well. For instance, if you if you start a race uh, with uh, some sleep deficit uh, or some. Uh, cognitive load, mental load, because for some reason you had issues in your life uh, in the month work or and week, whatnot. Uh, work or uh, issues with your wife or your husband or your kids or uh, you at work etc then when you start running you have already some uh, some water in the tank and of course uh, it means that you don't have much room to to reach your security reserve so you, you will have to decline your speed earlier during the race and that that explain why it's so important to be very well uh, mentally rested when you when you start a race so anyway so it was a uh, well, I thought it was fun of course to have a model uh, about the flush toilet but uh, yeah, for sure. it was not it was not only for fun i i i thought um of course i cannot tell whether it was a good idea or not but i i thought it was a good idea too no i think it illustrates it really well actually and i and i i liked it on your website how you've got it sort of all all laid out um a few things um with that one i think athletes probably now are more aware of outside stresses impacting on their ability to rest and taper before a race right so if if you have the luxury then it would say to me that it would be a good idea to try and um, offload some of your other external responsibilities so you are more relaxed sort of and rested going into going into a, a, a big run Oh yeah, I fully agree, and uh, I think it's still, uh, as you say, it's probably st it's probably coming, but it's still underestimated. Like uh, there are still many people. Uh, so of course there is this, uh, for instance, work uh, workload that you have to do uh, at your job, but uh, also some. Uh, so yeah, if you can uh, postpone some important meetings or stuff like that, 
after the race, I think it's it's a, it's a very good idea. Uh, of course, you need to make sure that you you sleep as much as possible. So we have published a couple of papers of uh, about what we call sleep banking. Uh, so maybe we can talk about that uh, later. Um, but yeah, I fully agree with, with you that some people some people start to consider this aspect, uh, but not everyone. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that, uh, for instance, some people are still uh, preparing uh, their uh, racing stuff in the week before the race so that, oh, yeah. that they are still doing that uh, during the evening and that they are stressed because they, they are missing a, a pair of uh, socks or whatever and then uh, this is a lot of anxiety because uh, yeah they feel like yeah i won't be ready for the race so i really need to to run everywhere to make sure that i get my stuff and this should be done uh, at least two weeks before the race so that the last week you should really uh, focus on your uh, recovery and uh, tapering and uh and sleep i agree and as you were saying you know the people that run around in their last day getting everything organized i mean that is so me um or i rely on my husband to do the organizing for me um and the sleep banking is an is an interesting one too because often i don't necessarily get great sleep the night before the race and i think that is quite um usual for a lot of people um, what what kind what did what did your research show with the sleep banking um Guillaume like what kind of sort of what, what kind of time are we are we sort of talking here what are some of the recommendations so the slim banking studies uh, have been mostly done uh, over a week of uh, sleep banking and uh, sleep manipulation. So, uh, so the, if we talk about the study from uh, Roop or our studies with the, one of my PhD student, Pierre Carnal. So it was a week of uh, sleep banking. So meaning, uh, uh, at least for us, it was uh, going to bed uh, two hours uh, before the usual uh, bedtime, uh, per two hours earlier uh, every night for six nights before a sleep deprivation episode. Uh, and this is usually the model that is used and i think this is this should be a, this should be enough for a runner so uh, you there is no need to uh, accumulate sleep for a month before the race but a week i think uh, seems a reasonable uh, reasonable uh, duration um and uh, so it can be done this sleep accumulation can be done by going to bed earlier or by taking naps or both um and if you do that even so the the, the night before the race, you are a bit stressed, so it's it's totally normal that you are so anxious about uh, doing a good race that you may not sleep as as uh, well as uh, usually. Uh, it, it's okay as long as you have accumulated sleep uh, during the the week before. And uh, there, there are still um, techniques that you can use to to relax, uh, like uh, breathing techniques and stuff like that, and, or meditation or whatever that you can use to to sleep, including the night uh, before the before the race. Uh, but again, even if you are not succeeding and you are uh, you don't have a very good night the, the the night before the race, it's it's probably it's probably okay as long as you have accumulated sleep again uh, the week. Yeah. Uh, but if you are if you are not doing that and you have uh, and even if you have a, a good night of sleep the the, the night before uh, i think this is not enough your one night of sleep is not enough to 
to uh, uh, to uh, completely cancel the sleep deficit that you may have in the the week before the race. Uh, so yeah, very very important aspect. Uh, a bit uh, underestimated, I think, by many runners. Of course, every every everyone is like, yeah, I I need to sleep well, but they I'm not 100 sure that they do everything they can to to really accumulate sleep. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point as well because most people are like, right, I'll just get a really good night's sleep the two nights leading into the race, thinking that it's completely within their control, but it's so hard to do that when you're in a different environment potentially and travelling around and stimulated by the by like registration and, and all the rest of it. It's very, um, yeah, it's not conducive to relaxing and, and getting sort of, I don't know, feeling more relaxed and like you're ready for it. Especially if you have to travel, I'm not even talking about jet lag. It's a different story. Not everyone is a professional athlete, so you cannot uh, go there 10 days. Uh, like if you're coming from New Zealand, for instance, in France, you cannot, uh, not everyone can afford uh, taking two weeks uh, to make sure that jet lag is, uh, is, uh, is, is okay. But, um, uh, but even without uh, talking about jet lag, yeah, there are, there are many things that you can do to make sure that you have a good sleep uh, before the, uh, the night, the the week before the race, and it's not actually only true for ultra marathon because uh, we are talking about the effect, the positive effect that we and others have shown on both the cognitive function, but also actually the physical uh, performance uh, on uh, during a uh, sleep deprivation. So it was not an ultra marathon model, but it was a exercise associated with sleep deprivation. Um, so we still have to conduct a study, a real study uh, in the field or to to show the, the the benefit of sleep extension or sleep banking uh, on marathon performance but uh, anyway so there were there was still this component of sleep deprivation in in the study I was uh, I'm talking about but this is I'm pretty convinced that this is even true if you are running um, like a marathon for instance or even a half marathon like uh, if it's a, like a very intense very short uh, uh, discipline such as a long jump or sprint it's probably not as important but as long as there is an endurance component in your sport it doesn't have to be an ultra with sleep deprivation during the race even if it's a like normal uh, endurance race sleep accumulation can be beneficial yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And then what about sort of during the race, if we're thinking about an ultra and we're talking about how the water sort of accumulates over time in the basin, yet things can help sort of slow that down, like what impact does nutrition and hydration play on that sort of fatigability in in ultra? Like what kind of, what do we know about that? Well, of course, if you have uh, not an optimal nutrition, well, nutrition can roll into into aspects. So the main one is uh, actually very important, and it's like uh, the your fitness level, your training status. If you don't have a good nutrition or if you don't have a good training, it means that your when you start running at a given speed, uh, your muscle fibers will start to fatigue earlier than if you have a good nutrition and a good uh, fatigue. Uh, sorry, uh, training state. Uh, and then it means that you will have to recruit uh, more uh, other muscle fibers and there, there is uh, what we call the feed forward mechanisms meaning that uh, that that explain actually part of the of the perceived exertion increase uh, during the race so of course the, if you don't have an optimal nutrition this will directly impact this plus if you are going for instance uh, if, if you're 
uh, under fuel, etc. Uh, you may also have some, uh, so you will probably race at a too high intensity, and you have also signal coming from your from your muscles. Uh, so this is uh, so the first the first mechanisms I was talking was the feed forward mechanisms, and here we are talking about feedback mechanisms, and both probably contributes to the to the increase of perceived exertion, to the increase of water in the tank during during the race. Uh, so this is and and this is of course very important. Uh, so yeah, nutrition is again nutrition cannot uh, well if, except if it's a real hypoglycemia so that's a different story but uh, nutrition is important and it's part of the model uh, because again it will impact the the speed at which the level of water will increase okay the second aspect is uh, and, and i'm sure you're very familiar uh, with this work uh, the, the for instance the mouth rinsing work yeah, yeah. So if you if you only take a, a energy drink, a sweet drink in your, it's not sweet because if it's a aspartame, for instance, it doesn't work. It has to be real real sugar, but Actually, you don't, yeah. you don't ingest this uh, those carbohydrates. Uh, so just mouth wrenching and then you spit the, the, the liquid, then yeah. studies have shown that you will actually uh, improve your performance and probably because you have this uh, feeling that something, um, that, that the carbohydrates are coming, even so they are not uh, actually. Um, and then uh, this will probably uh, also impact your level of water because it will decrease your uh, perceived exertion. So this is, it's not, of course, as uh, impactful as the real nutrition, but this is another aspect where uh, nutrition can also play a role. Do you think that there's um, utility in using that if someone's got GI issues? So if they can't, if their stomach is really upset, they can't actually take on board any nutrition? Because you hear that all the time, like people get in trouble and they just end up vomiting out for kilometers. Like, do you think that the carb rinsing actually could be helpful in that instance? Um, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, first, I don't think if it, if it works, and I think it works, there are, even so, there are studies, uh, that are like not 100% of the studies, uh, agreed on, on, on that, but, uh, I would say most, uh, are saying that this is beneficial, but the impact is not, uh, is not that big. It's still, it's still beneficial, I think. So if, whether or not you you can do that, um, maybe because yeah, in theory it should it should improve improve your performance even slightly, but still. Uh, however, I'm not even sure that you are, if you are in the state that you are describing with a heavy uh, intense gastrointestinal uh, disorders, like just having uh, this in in your mouth may actually mm. reinforce your uh, your yeah. <laughs> you know this this feeling. So I'm not uh, I don't know and I don't think anybody knows <laughs> yeah yeah interesting so so because I I generally when I chat to people about about GI issues my general um, recommendations is to back off the intensity back off the nutrition and wait for things to settle down and then typically speaking during a long event you will always have these highs and lows of how you feel so and then just you know you'll get and just know that you'll get through that and then you'll be able to start taking stuff on board that's generally what I would say is that what do you think about that advice good 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's exactly what uh, one should do. Uh, try to uh, reduce intensity, uh, drink water um, if possible, and then uh, slowly restart uh, fueling again. There are um, like um, things like uh, drinking Coke, uh, Coke can Coca Cola can can help, uh, um, and try to switch to different uh, different uh, uh, food. Um, and of course, uh, the best thing is to try to avoid that. So, and a good way, as you know, a good way to do that is to is really to, to switch from different foods, some solid and liquid, uh, salty yeah. and sweet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's even if you do that, it can happen. And I think your, your recommendation is totally right. And uh, keep in mind that uh, it can really uh, go better uh, because if you have not experienced that, you feel like no, how how can it? Be better it's it's impossible i'm feeling so bad uh, at the moment that it cannot uh, it cannot come back again and uh, think about uh, i was talking about ludo pomeray ludovic pomeray so the french ultra runner who was uh, again fifth this year at utmb as i said at the age of 48 uh, but when he won uh, utmb a couple of years ago he was uh, i cannot tell you exactly but because of uh, gi disorders he was he was like uh, very far uh after maybe 50k and he was able to come back and actually win the race win the UTM yeah. so yeah it's, yeah amazing it's, this example shows that it's de definitively possible yeah and i think it really speaks to like the art and science of endurance sport right because we have all of this scientific knowledge but sometimes you just don't know what's going to happen on the day and so having as an athlete because i think about this myself like i want to have a couple of different plans for if things don't go to plan so i then have confidence that it's going to be okay because i think part of it is that when things don't go the way that you anticipate you can sort of panic a little bit which must um fill that tank up a little bit more with that distress that occurs when when things don't go according to plan yeah, yeah I, I agree and um and it's it's a good thing to know and so to give example like like the example that i just uh, provided about Pomeray, but it's even better if you have experienced that yourself and it's uh, it's a good thing about uh, uh being also a runner yourself because uh, you can you can tell your athlete yeah i can tell you that uh, uh this runner and uh, this happened in the past and uh, they, he was or she was not feeling well and then it came back etc but if you have experienced that yourself and it happened to me a couple of times in particular i remember my second utmb when i did my best performance at utmb uh, i was really feeling bad after two-thirds of the race yeah and then i was like uh, i was saying to my uh, crew okay i'm going to the next head station but i'm probably and yeah i don't want to uh, give up now but i will probably be done uh, at the next head station so please go there and and wait for me i will probably stop there yeah and then i was um caught by a runner uh, Antoine Guillaume and then I decided to try to, uh, uh, to to follow him and all of the sudden for some reason I'm not even really able to explain why it, I started to feel better and at the end I placed fourth at the UTMB and oh, that was amazing. my best so yeah and I was like feeling so bad so once you have experienced that yourself you can be confident and tell your athlete yeah this is this is possible of course it's not 100% of the time that it will come back but it it definitely happens and having this experience uh, can uh, yeah uh, 
make you confident when you you tell others that yeah this is this is the truth this is i'm not only telling that to motivate you and this is the reality yeah yeah and that's uh totally what an experience um what about um ketones now have you seen have you been sort of across the research looking at the the potential for improved cognition with ketones and and do you think that they're another avenue for athletes to trial in terms of improved um sort of mental fatigability um well first i'm not an expert in nutrition uh, uh no i haven't done uh, like a specific research on, on ketones uh, in in my in my book uh, i have a, a paragraph i mean a section on, on ketone uh but uh, actually i was not the one writing this <laughs> this uh this section however uh i I'm not sure. Again, I'm not an expert, so I may be wrong, but I'm not I'm sure that we have enough evidence to, to uh, strongly recommend ketones diets, uh, in ultra endurance. And of course, as you know better than I do, uh, if there is a sport where ketones can work, this is ultra, uh, for sure. We know it doesn't work for shorter, more intense exercises, but even for ultra endurance runners, I'm not 100% sure that uh, this is something I would recommend. So maybe if we have uh, someone like uh, uh, we were talking about uh, GI distress, uh, someone who has done everything uh, he or she can to improve and it was still not not there, uh, maybe this is an avenue that can help uh, the athletes. Uh, but uh, if you have a like um, if you don't have any major issues with that. Um, I, I'm not convinced that we should really push an athlete to do this uh, ketogenic uh, diet, and then the effect, the effect on mental fatigue. Sorry, I don't, I don't know the literature yeah, yeah. to answer you. Yeah, no, no, that. that's fine. And they've, um, they've just been trials that have just sort of utilized ketones outside of the actual diet. Um, so they've just sort of put them on rather than have, having people. Ah, okay, sort okay. Of, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, okay. So I thought you were talking about uh, a ketogenic diet. diet. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I misunderstood. Yeah, no, no. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, uh, no, and, and again, not on, uh, so ketone supplementation. I don't know the, the literature about that. Uh, yeah. and the mental, so mental fatigue. Um, so it depends also on what you call mental, mental fatigue, because if you have an effect on cognitive function, uh, it can be helpful, but this is not the main thing in ultra, right? You, you are not uh, supposed to think too, too heavily during, during a race. Uh, so we need to see the effect on the perceived exertion. Can, can ketone supplementation help to reduce the level of water in the tank? This is the question and I don't have the answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, good, good. Um, and actually I wonder with a lot of that, um, because it is to do with the rate of perceived exertion, like, that's so because it is perception like you could do a number of things which might not necessarily stack up in terms of science but if it makes you feel like you're going a little bit faster or you're you're a little bit more focused then i suppose that that could be a benefit yeah um yeah this is a well-known placebo effect of course yeah yeah um guillaume how so your model when you first sort of designed it in 2011 like has that evolved like are there any changes now that you think yeah i could add this little bit to that model to further explain this or or has it sort of remained quite robust over the last 12 years I guess uh, every time I see new publications, I use them as uh, uh, an evidence that, uh, yeah, it fits the model pretty well. Uh, 
So uh, no, I, I can't tell that the the model has uh, changes has changed sorry so much uh, uh, in the last twelve years. Uh, I think um, most of the so when I explain the model and I uh, and I explain why I think this is a, this is a good model. I can use uh, new studies uh, because of course the studies are are uh, keep uh, being published. Yeah. But uh, no, I can't tell the model has really changed. I mean, I've changed my mind on several aspects, such as, uh, uh, for instance, in the, I remember, for instance, the first edition of my book, I was uh, saying, because I think by then it was the what people were thinking that you cannot, for instance, for instance improve, improve, sorry, the the, the amount of uh, carbohydrate that you can uh, you can uh, ingest in in one of our and now we yeah the the training your guts uh, st- studies have shown that this is this is wrong so yeah i can i can uh, i change my mind on 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 several topics but uh not directly related to the model i would say um i'm trying to think about that now but i have i don't know no examples where i was like yeah no this is uh i was saying that uh in the model and this has changed yeah. um not not much I think it's it's still the model is still valid. That's good. Uh, it's, it's good. You, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great to have something so robust. Um, now I did actually see um a paper that you um have published or are an author on talking about the importance of VO two max for ultra distance, which some people might find surprising because you know it's low intensity, it's hiking, it's endurance. Can you sort of describe the importance of VO two max for for like ultra running yes so it's a good it's a good another good point a good question of course yeah when you run a view to max uh, sorry when you run an ultra uh, you are such a low intensity as you said uh, probably around uh, well depending on which ultra of course but uh, between 40 and 60 percent of your view to max of course this is a very very sub maximal and and you're right some people may say so yeah what's the point of trying to improve your view to max well the key is the in in this percentage actually uh, because if you run at a given speed and you have a high view to max of course the this speed will represent a much lower percentage of your view to max and there are positive positive um, consequences uh, of that one is for instance we're talk- talking about ketones etc one is the type of substrate that you will util- utilize yeah so if you are at a lower as you know of course uh, and most of your listeners i guess know if you are at a lower percentage of view to max then you will uh, rely uh, mainly on uh, lipids and if you are at a high intensity you will rely on carbohydrates and you, of course you want to to use your um, your fat uh, to to provide energy as much as you can so this is one one example um so yeah it's it's still very important to have a good view to max um uh that being said and uh, I, I think the the best example is Kilian Jornet. We we know that he has super good view to max um and uh, it definitely helps him to be a a good a good runner of course this is not enough obviously uh, there is no need to say that there are many parameters many factors many factors of performance in your endurance as in all sports uh but in ultra it's probably even more true than in other sports because it's so complex you have so so many um factors that can play a role that it's uh it's very very complex anyway um 
So yeah, I, I really believe that V2 Max is still an important factor of performance in uh, in Ultra. Yeah. What this paper shown, um, actually we published a couple of papers, so I'm not sure which one you're talking about, but uh, we, uh, we did a study uh, at UTMB again, where we uh, analyzed the uh, well, view to max and other physiological factors of, of foreigners doing the, what we call the short distance, which was the, the two shortest distance of UTMB, uh, basically 40 to 55k. Uh, then the CCC, which is a 100k, and then the longest one, TDS and the UTMB, so 145 and, and uh, plus. And then we try to correlate the view to max with performance for the different distances. And what we showed is that, yeah, the, the longer the distance, the less important is view to max. So in certain, so, and there are other studies that have shown correlation, for instance, between view to max and performance for short distance and not long distance. Uh, so some studies have shown no correlation uh, between view to max and performance in ultra. Um, but so and we have shown the same and we have shown a correlation between view to max and the performance at UTMB. So the summary of that is that view to max is still an important factor uh, for performance in ultra, but less than in shorter distances. And um, at the end of the day, the message is, yeah, you still need to train your view to max. We know that training cannot improve um, uh, hugely your view to max. It's it's mainly genetics, uh, but still, you still need to do your best to to improve your view to max. And then after a couple of years, there is no way you can further improve your view to max. But you still need to train it to avoid that it dec it, it decreases too much, especially with age. Uh, so there is still a need to do uh, intense exercise, even so you are an ultra. However, if you are, if you don't have a super good view to max then running ultras could be a good idea because since the impact is uh, less than shorter distances, you can you have a better chance to be a good runner, a, a good <laughs> ultra runner if you don't have a super good view to max and if you are not uh, lucky with the with lottery of uh, genetics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so that's good to know. So if, with because I'm thinking, so right now, um, Guillaume, um, I'm training for a marathon, very sort of quick build, quick build before I then train for move on to train for Tatawera 100k here in New Zealand which is which is in which is sort of a 12 week so with the timing of my training with my marathon um like I'm doing quite a bit of shorter harder stuff which should theoretically is sort of vo2 max type training is it a good time to sort of train that stuff now before leading into my sort of longer hiking running type stuff what do you think yeah yeah i think it's reasonable uh, and then the question is okay should you when should you stop training or uh, at least decrease the amount of training doing uh, interval training and uh, so trying to maintain your view to max um yeah i think uh then there is the development phase when you need to do uh for instance two sessions per week and this is usually uh early in the season and then you maintain that by doing uh maybe a session every other week or oh, nice. uh, doing short doing short races uh sometimes you can also participate to shorter races um so yeah and, and then of course we need to uh to probably to discuss in more details about your training oh, plan, but, but, uh, but this is not the purpose. I do not want to do that. <laughs> 
but generally speaking, I think it's uh, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. No, that is awesome. Um, now it's like I also actually saw a paper that you you looked at looking at elite versus non-elite trail runners, which was kind of great because the sport has seemed to have exploded over the last few years. Um, so. Are there so where can people who like age groupers, where should they, I don't know, like broadly speaking, I know everyone is different, but what elements should we need to look at to help improve our performance, sort of based on the differences between the elite and the age group athletes, would you say? Well, in, in the paper you are uh, mentioning, and I can tell you that you, you read the literature very well, so thank you for citing so, so many of my papers. <laughs> You've done your work, your uh, homework. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, we didn't uh, investigate all factors of performance when we compared elite versus non-elite. And actually in another paper, uh, maybe that was your next point, we also compared world runners versus uh, trail runners in, in elite uh, in French national team, both uh, marathon uh, French national team and uh, trail running team. Anyway, so the question was elite versus uh, sub non-elite. And so in this paper, we did not, for instance, we did not investigate view to max uh, or endurance. So we focused on the, actually the nervous club function and the energy cost of running. And what we found is that uh, energy cost of running, uh, so it, it cannot directly answer your, your question, which is much broader than, than just uh, what we, we did. But still, so we, I think we added, uh, uh, so we had a step further in the, the comparison between uh, elite and non-elite. And what we found is uh, that energy cost is actually uh, better in elite than on elite. So, so and we know that this is, this is yeah, lower, mm. better mean lower. Mm. Uh, so when you're an elite runner, you spend less energy uh, than non-elites. And again, it could be a, a genetics or or not general due to training and in view to max i think the genetic part is more important in energy cost i think the training component is more important so it's probably simply due to the fact that they are training more and if you train more then you will sim simply by training more you increase your energy cost of running and uh, this is uh, this is of course one factor of performance i don't think it's as important as on road running and uh, as in short distance so we are talking about the, the relative contribution of view to max in performance so in, in uh, so view to max is not as important on short distance and i would say the same that energy cuts Cost is not as important in ultra as it is in short distances. So what is more important is the endurance component. Of course, you need to be able to resist to the decline of speed with uh, with time. So the endurance the endurance aspect uh, is is very important in ultra. But view to max and energy cost are still important, but not as much as on shorter distances. In in my opinion, not everyone agrees with that, but this is this is what I think. So yeah, so you can improve. You can improve. Uh, uh, energy cost, meaning de decrease your energy cost by training. And there are also ways to improve that is a uh, strength training, resistance training, you do plyometric or even uh, heavy resistance training is a good way to also minimize your energy cost of running. Again, I think it's more important for uh, like marathon or half marathon 10K than ultra. Yeah, okay, that's good. Especially, especially, uh, especially trail running, ultra trail running. Okay, no, that's good to know. I really, I enjoy strength training. I really hate plyometrics, like with a passion. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of discipline for me to do it. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, so um, finally, 
um, Guillaume, because I'm in, I I know that you know we're almost up on an hour. Um, I was excited to see that you this year you're working with Sullivan, and they've got a really they appear to be very focused on, um, and as they always are, of course. But you know the real sort of science side of of running and and providing these services for their athletes. Um, what are you hoping to do with the athletes at Sullivan? It's a good uh, good point. So it's not to uh, talk about another podcast uh, because of, I know, of oh, course, that, uh, about, but yeah, yeah, yes. exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. So we did uh, with uh, with Jason Cook. We did a podcast entirely dedicated to that. So if yeah. people uh, want more about the program, they can they can probably uh, uh, listen this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, anyway, so to answer your your question, so the idea was to really to to try to provide uh, the like all the support that the athletes uh, need uh, for performance. So, um, uh, of course, for many years, uh, Salomon had a, a team uh, and, and probably one of the best, to not say the best uh, team, uh, especially in ultra, but even in short distance, as a, since we have Remy Bonnet, for instance. Anyway, and, uh, and they, of course, the support that they provided was uh, amazing in terms of uh, equipment uh, for many years now. And now they wanted to, um, to, to provide uh, something else than, than just uh, equipment and biomechanical analysis and all the work that they can do with the scientists at Salomon. Um, so this is why they decided to launch this uh, this program. So which is based on a network of uh, experts, and I'm I'm leading the program, but of course I'm not the only one involved. I'm just uh, coordinating the different experts uh, when there is a need for an athlete to to work on on different aspects of performance. Um, and as I explained in in uh, Coop's um, uh, podcast, uh, it's uh, it's difficult to um to how can i say that to uh involve the athletes in this support i mean they in theory you may think okay so they're they are going to be super happy and they, they were actually uh, but they they knew that uh there will be a support they were most of them were actually uh, not all of them some of them are not interested at all by the scientific aspect and it's totally fair i respect that but most of them were yeah this is this is cool uh this is a plus for us etc but then when the moment came that uh, they uh, I, I could help uh, we did many things during the year so it's uh, it's definitely a plus but i was uh, hoping actually to do more and so uh, i believe first that it takes time to change their mind uh, and make them having a more rational approach uh, when i say them it's uh, not only the athletes it is the athlete and their coach. Uh, again, most of the coaches are, are interested, are very keen, are interested. But then, I mean, it's true for, again, for the athlete and the coaches. They have uh, their routine. They have, uh, they all, everyone has a super busy schedule. And if you want to, to implement things, it takes time. 
And uh, so you have to make a choice sometimes between uh, uh, training and testing, between uh, resting and uh, uh, getting more out of uh, a program such as the S2A program, etc. So it's um, it's not as easy as it may seem. Uh, again, we have done uh, quite a few things uh, in terms of uh, testing, advice, etc. For and I cannot, of course, uh, reveal everything. I have to uh, some some things are actually everything is a secret mm. confidential um but um yeah it's um uh, i hope that we can um i know that we can do more yeah and i hope we can more in the future uh and it, it takes time uh i mean there are elite athletes if they are in the team it means that they are here for a reason uh so they are among the best uh which in my opinion doesn't mean that they cannot further improve yes and science 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 is definitely not the the only way to improve performance but this is one avenue among other avenue and i think it's a for some athletes it can really make a difference for others maybe less but everyone can uh, uh, benefit in my opinion from this program um yeah so we need to keep uh, working uh, maybe make them more confident about the program uh, about uh, what we can uh, what we can do how we can improve the performance but it will hopefully it will come yeah and i feel like whatever lessons you learn over the next 5 or 10 years will i mean these are lessons which will trans down to the age group athlete you know like if you can learn from the best regardless of their genetics you're right there are still training techniques and ways to do things which can improve them which will you know when um whenever embargoes are lifted or when whenever you're able to talk about things down the line I, th I feel like that would be beneficial for you know us um age group athletes as well and this is actually uh, again i cannot uh, reveal everything it's uh, also confidential but this is exactly what Solomon wants to do yeah nice <laughs> they, 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 they want to the program is not uh, for now it's mainly dedicated to elite athletes uh, but exactly what they want to do they want they hope to that this program will benefit to uh, to their consumers uh, to also lower level athletes and uh, they also want to provide services to their to 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 everyone yeah. in the future yeah. uh, Again, this is a bit confidential, but uh, we will uh, uh, launch something very soon that will go in this direction. So hopefully it will be very helpful for the runners. That is awesome. We'll that is awesome, Guillaume. Now, just one final question. Um, anything new in this sort of realm of research and ultra runners, which you are super excited for, that we have to look out for on PubMed or ResearchGate or, or anything? Anything in the pipelines? Yeah, one thing I, w I was surprised you didn't ask anything about that is the sex differences. Oh, I, want, I did yeah. want to actually. It's on my list, but I saw the time. Are you? Yeah, yeah. Can you? Oh yeah, maybe maybe it could be another entire podcast because this is there are so many things to say and it's uh, yeah it's probably too late to to start talking about that. But this is a uh, to answer your question. This is something that is very exciting. This is something we have started to work on uh, a couple of years ago, uh, actually many years ago now, and. 
uh, we just uh, had a PhD in the lab uh, on, on this specific topic, uh, then use big data to also uh, try to understand better the the sex differences in, in, in running, in endurance running. So yeah, this is something I, uh, I really want to, to further investigate in the future. Very like, uh, how can we explain that uh, some female endurance athletes are so good than in ultra? Um, yes. So it's not as simple as it may uh, seem, it may uh, seem. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know if I want to start talking about that because if I start, it may be another 20 minutes. I know, but it's, and, uh, and you know what? It's very, it's very exciting. No, I hear you, Guillaume. If you were happy to come and chat to me another time, I would love to do an entire podcast and that would be amazing. Did you see that the, the Berlin world record went last night um, yeah. in the marathon and that that I was thinking. Ah, that's a, it's, a, it's a very impressive performance. I, very impressive. I can, yeah, 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 yeah. The gap is closing. Um, even though that's ultra versus marathon, it's quite different sport. Um, Guillaume, where can people find more about you and your research? Uh, I have a personal website, so maybe you can put the link I in will. your uh, your page. So it's kinesiology. Yeah. Uh, dot com. Uh, and there is the French and an English uh, site. So, yeah, your your listeners can find everything on the English part. Okay, that is amazing. Thank you so much for your time this morning. And I certainly would love to um, chat more in depth about the sex differences because that definitely was on my list of things to, to talk about. Um, it, it, it will be too long, but, uh, yeah, another time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it will be a pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. Thank you. See you later. Have a lovely day. Bye-bye. team hopefully you got something from that and I certainly did in the build up to Tadawera uh, well hopefully 102 we'll just see how this uh, calf holds up um, but certainly he is a wealth of information and I'm really looking forward to discussing in more depth the six differences in endurance athletes because that is going to be um, such a fascinating conversation and next week on the podcast, I speak to coach David Mathis all about reverse dieting and health restoration diets. He's a member of Team BioLane. Great conversation there. Until then, though, don't forget that you have 50% off my fixed term meal plans up until Friday. So if you want to give yourself the gift of health or someone you love, then this is a perfect opportunity to do so. I have my fat loss plan for women, flow. I have the man plan. I have my 12-week be awesome real food nutrition plan. And I also have my 12-week athlete plan available. So make sure you check that out. We will pop links in the show notes to that as well. And of course, you can DM me. You also have the opportunity to defer starting until the dust is settled on New Year. So don't forget that. Uh, catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition. Twitter, threads, and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, and pick yourself up at an awesome deal on my meal plans. All right, team, you have the best day. See you later. <laughs>